How are you guys doing tonight? Everybody's doing good? Just out of sheer curiosity, how many of you guys are from the States? Can you guys raise your hand from the States? Okay, that's a lot of people. How many of people from the States are from California? Any East Coast? Do you have any East Coast people? Come on, yeah, yeah. East, East Coast people are just like... <laughs> California's like... <laughs> uh, what about um, anybody from Southeast Asia? Okay, nice. I like that energy in the back over there, gal. Um, anybody from anywhere in, in Australia, New Zealand, that area? Okay, we got a little, little small wave over here. Uh, what about the whole continent of Africa? Let's just group all y'all. Hey. <laughs> Cheesy with her blonde hair in the back. Um, First of all, I just really want to welcome all of you guys to this ministry. Uh, my name is Erin, and I'm from New York. New York. Concrete jungle. Anyway, you know. You know. I'm from New York. I was born and raised in New York. And uh, I'm, like Tina said, the executive director of this ministry. I also co-lead pastor the church that oversees this with my husband. Uh, and I've been in Korea for about seven years now. Dang, that's a long time. Uh, and when I thought, what I thought when I was moving out here to Korea was that I'd be here for a year, but um, obviously uh, a year turned into seven, and I'm I'm happily here, hopefully for a lifetime. Uh, I met my husband here, and we've been married uh, for about five years now, over five years. And yeah, I got married pretty young because I came out to Korea right after I graduated college. And so I've been, I think I was married, we were engaged when I was 23 and I got married when I was 24. So quite young, if you're from New York, but quite old if you're from like Arkansas. So I guess it's all relative, right? Uh, and just a little bit of my background before I kind of go into the word. Um, college ministry, the fact that I'm doing college ministry is pretty ridiculous because when I was a college student, I never went to college ministry. I think I went maybe like once. And um, when I was in college, I was a sorority girl. I don't know if you guys know what sororities are, but yeah, half of y'all just judge me right now. And that's okay. It's all right. Um, I was a sorority girl. I was a party girl. I was into drugs. I was into clubbing, drinking. Um, yeah, I did a lot of stuff. My husband, on the other hand, he, he was a righteous, holy man. Uh, he like, seriously, he never even smoked a cigarette, I think. And, um, yeah, I, I obviously I, <laughs> I've done all, all of the above. Uh, and yeah, I, I think I went to college ministry once. And when I went, like I had a really bad experience because as soon as I walked in, I just felt like everyone was judging me. You ever feel like that? just being judged. I walked in, I felt like everybody was judging me. Meanwhile, I'm looking at everybody in the room and like 50% of the room, they were in the club the night before, you know? And I'm like, please, I saw you <laughs> like the night before. And I'm like, how dare you judge me and you hypocrites. And that, that was my mentality. I just, I think the guilt of what I was doing and, and the lifestyle that I was living really made it very uncomfortable for me to be a part of college ministry. And uh, I tried, I really did. Um, there was one point where I had kind of a turning point in, in college and I did try to go out. I joined a small group for like, I, I think I went to small group maybe twice and you know, they were lovely. And I think they all like really fasted and prayed for me. Cause I was like that person, you know, that like, if God can do something in their life, like God is alive. Um, 
And I, like, I was around, and they're all, like, really excited. Like, oh, my gosh, Aaron, it's so good to see you. But I went, like, twice, and then I just didn't go. Um, and so <laughs> it was after college where I really felt, feel like I had my um, breakthrough kind of um, transformation. And being in Korea was a big part of that uh, as well. Um, so, you know, here's my philosophy on college ministry. If you guys are planning to go clubbing, if you guys are planning to drink, if you guys are smokers, if you guys are, you know, sexing it up, that's what my husband likes to say. I know, right? Every time he says something, I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Y'all like sexing it up. Listen, this is what I have to say to you. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what your plans are. Just come out. You're welcome. Just come out. And just like Tina said, just taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm not here to tell you change A, B, C, and D before you come to this Christian fellowship. I'm not interested in doing that. What I'm here for is to let you know, hey, come out and see that God is so much better than all of those things I just mentioned and let him prove that to you. And when you want to change, you'll change. Does that make sense? So, so be welcomed here. I, I genuinely, sincerely want you to feel welcome. I don't want you to feel judged. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. I want you guys to feel welcomed wherever you guys are in your spiritual journey. And for those of you that are not, wouldn't even consider the, yourself Christians, you're welcome here. If you have questions about who God is and Jesus and all of that stuff, just come out. Come out and see. Hang with us. Ask us those questions. We'll try to answer a lot of them, but we probably won't be able to answer everything. But again, even for you guys, just you're welcome. You're all welcome here. That's from the bottom of my heart. I want to sincerely convey that to you guys. You guys with me? All right. Now for the gangster word I'm apparently supposed to preach, according to Tina. All right. Let's do this. I'm going to preach out of a passage that I pretty much preach maybe like, I don't know, a lot of messages from. It's the Emmaus account. So why don't you guys turn with me to Luke chapter 24. This is where we get our, our name from. Why are we called Emmaus Campus Ministry? Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 34. Yeah, if you guys don't carry your Bibles around... You know, I get it. It's heavy. You should just download an app on your smartphone. You guys all have smartphones. That's my suggestion. Me, I like walking around with a physical Bible because I'm one of those people that, you know, mark things up. Um, but if you guys don't have something to look up, why don't you guys just share with your neighbor? So we're looking at Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be reading from verses 13 all the way to 34. This is how we'll do it. I'll read one verse. You guys can read the next because it's a pretty long passage. We'll go back and forth. I'm reading from the ESV. You guys feel free to read from whatever version that you have. Um, yeah, so I'll start. You guys ready? Here we go. Uh, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and looking sad.
And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. Mm, Nice. Um, I guess it's all, all the way to verse 35. Excuse me. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And everyone says, amen. Amen. Um, let me give you a little bit of, I guess, culture in this ministry. I, I like to keep it a little bit conversational, you know? So when I'm preaching and you guys hear something that's like, man, that's a good word. Just a amen, a little hand wave, you know, that's a good word. Preach it. Hey, all those things. You're welcome to do that. You're welcome to do that. I don't really like a silent congregation. I'm more conversational. So just feel free. If you hear people saying that, don't think they're weird. It's because personally, I like that style. You guys okay with that? Nice. Nice. I like that. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I love movies with a twist. Man, like for me, I love thrillers. Like, I love those movies where you're just like on the edge of your seat and the whole time you're guessing like it's him. No, it's him. No, it's him. Because I always get those right. And my husband, he hates watching those movies with me because I'm always like, he killed the girl with that thing. And later on, it happened like that. And he's like, dude, I hate watching movies with you. But I love those kind of movies that at the end, your mind's just blown like, what? Are you serious? Now, I was trying to think of examples, but I'm a little older than y'all. And so, like, a lot of my examples were kind of, like, old school. I don't know if you guys know about the movie Seven or The Usual Suspects. Okay, so I'm going to bring in a little bit, you know, let me bring in a little bit up to speed. Anybody watch Sixth Sense? Oh, that's like some of the room. That's a little bit too old for some of y'all, too. But Sixth Sense, man, when that, I would think I was, like, in high school when that movie came out. What are y'all in elementary school during that time? Okay, let's not talk about that, all right? So I think I was like in high school when that movie came out. And here's this movie about this man that comes into a counter with a ghost. And he does this whole, you know, whatever 
whatever he's doing. I think he was like a cop or something. Anyway, you go through the whole movie. If you don't watch it, I'm about to ruin, to ruin it for you right now. At the end, you find out that he himself is a ghost. What? <laughs> this whole time, it, it was like literally the end happened and you're like, what just it, it was awesome. Just mind blown. It was one of those things that after you, you get that piece of revelation that he's a ghost, the whole story completely changes. And it's like you want to watch the movie all over again knowing now what you know. Because everything you thought up to that point was wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like you thought you understood the story, but you didn't. It wasn't until that last piece of information came and you're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. There's another old school movie. It's called Shutter Island. You guys ever watched Shutter Island? Shutter Island. Don't watch it. It's disturbing. That movie is crazy too. Um, I, I was thinking of maybe Fight Club, any Fight Club, some of y'all Fight Club, man, I was really trying to think of more recent movies and I was like, oh, Fight Club's another movie. I'm about to ruin this movie for you too. To me, it's a classic, but you shouldn't watch it. It's not that edifying, but with, uh, with Brad Pitt, praise him, right? No, I'm playing. I'm playing. I saw some hallelujah over here. Let's all worship only one God, all right? No, so with Brad Pitt and with Ed Norton, whoo, it's a crazy movie. And you think you have it figured out. These two different characters, they have this relationship. But that at the end, you realize that it's the same guy. And what he has is a mental disorder where he has multiple personalities. But it's represented by two different actors. So you think it's two different people, and they're talking to each other, and they're talking to different people. But at the end, it's the same person. You're like, what? Mind blown. Again, you think you understand the story. You think you understand what happened, but it's not until that last piece of information that literally changes the whole story. I just, I love those kind of movies. That's, I pay money for that. These days, movies are quite expensive. I pay money for that. You know, Frozen. Okay, I tried with this one. But, you know, I know that most of y'all probably saw it. What's that homie's name? The guy that was, like, supposed to be good? Hans, you know, he's supposed to be this. Oh, uh, did somebody not watch a movie here? Oh, shoot. The one person with the can, you know. Are, are you going to cry if I'm about to ruin this movie for you? Okay, good, good. Okay, because I'm about to ruin it for everybody here. So Hans is this character in Frozen. And... <laughs> <laughs> are you serious? Oh, are you genuinely going to watch it? I'll, I'll withhold. I'll withhold. I'll withhold. I'll withhold. It's too late. You already know what, the, what it's going to be because I just ruined it for you. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. Anyway, going back to the, the topic at hand, I really enjoy a movie with twists um, because it just reframes stories. And, and just when you think you have a handle of, of understanding the course of events, you find out something and you realize, oh my gosh, I, I didn't get it at all. Now I really understand what happened. This passage here in Emmaus is kind of like that moment here. 
where you have two disciples, and these are supposed to be one of the 70 disciples. Actually, it's pretty unclear who these disciples were, but a lot of scholars, biblical scholars, say that they were considered one of the 70. So Jesus had his, like, main crew, which was the apostles, and then he had, like, his sub-crew, which were, like, 70 disciples, and then it was, like, sub-sub-crew, which is, like, everybody that followed them around. You know what I mean? Which is, like, a lot of people. And so here are these two disciples and they're walking towards Emmaus and, and the heart attitude that they're carrying is that they're super discouraged and disappointed. If you look at the scriptures, they're talking and discussing about certain things that just happened. What they're referring to is Jesus just died on the cross. Okay. And out of nowhere, Jesus appears and their eyes are covered from actually seeing him. So they think it's some random homie walking beside them. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they mention the things that happened to Jesus. And he's like, what happened? They're like, dude, are you, what, what planet are you from? How do you not know what happened? This is like the talk of the town. It was like the, oh, I was going to give some weird example about Miley Cyrus, but I'm going to withhold. But it was, it was the talk of the town, some event that like everybody was talking about. Everybody knew what was happening. And here's this guy that, that stranger to them. It's Jesus, but to them is a stranger. And he has uh, pretending like he has no idea. And they're talking, and this is their description of what happened. He says, what happened? So they go, um, verse, where are we at? 19. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and a word and word before God and all the people, verse 20, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Watch this, verse 21. Hear the tone in their hearts. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. To them, they were disappointed. They were sad. The thing about Jesus that they understood from their grid, from their understanding, was Jesus was supposed to be this political leader. The Messiah was supposed to be a political leader that was going to come back and redeem Israel and bring them back to their rightful place as, like, the best. Because if you look at the Old Testament, God was with his people, and all the nations around Israel feared Israel because of the signs and wonders that they carried. Because everyone knew that the God that they served was a real God. They wanted to go back to the glory days. And they were thinking, Jesus, this man, he's the one to take us. He's the next president. And they're putting their hope in him. They're thinking, man, all of the struggles, all of the woes, all the burdens that I'm facing up to this point, this man is going to be the one to solve it all. And next thing you know, this person that's supposed to be their hero is getting crucified. They put all their hope in this man. And he dies. They're disappointed. They're upset. At this point, they're confused. And they're talking about amongst, man, what happened? I thought he was the one. Remember that time when he multiplied the bread and the fish? And remember that time when he raised that man from the dead? All of the signs looked like it was pointing to that, that he was the one. What happened? Have you guys ever felt disappointed? Have you ever had something that you were putting all your hope in just completely fall, crashing to the ground? Some of you guys have even been disappointed in God himself. And you look at your circumstances and your situations and you're like, what, God, if you are real, why would I go through this? If you love me and you care about me and I'm your son or I'm your daughter, why would I have to face this right now? 
Why am I going through this suffering? Why would I put my hope and my life in you? And all this disappointment, disillusionment. They were discouraged. They were sad. I grew up in the church. My dad was an elder. My mom was a kunzanim, which is, what is that? Deaconess? I don't know what that is, but it's like, you know, she was a gangster woman praying all the time. That's pretty much her role. I grew up in the church, but I was disappointed with church. You know, there was a season where I really fell in love with God. I believed my salvation, my conversion. I got saved when I was in sixth grade. It was genuine. You know, we were singing the nails in your hands. So old school, the nail in your feet. And I was like, (laughs) and I just gave my life to the Lord with that song. I love that song. It's so powerful. It was at a retreat. It was epic, you know? So I gave my life to the Lord and I believe that it was a genuine understanding of what Jesus did for me on the cross. But after that, you know, I got excited for God, but then I started seeing things in the church. I was like, hold up. This, this is weird. This is not right. Elders fighting, people saying things, but acting a different way. You know what I'm saying? Like even, even being disappointed in just the pastors. I had a pastor when I was in youth group right after I got saved. And man, I thought this man was like, so holy. I thought he was so um, charismatic. I thought he was this incredible man of God. And, and he was married to this beautiful wife. And they had the two cutest kids, one daughter and one little son. And I mean, he was really like my mentor, my role model. This was when I was in sixth grade, right after I got saved. And then about a couple of months later, he doesn't show up to church. And we're like, what, what happened? Hey, where's pastor so-and-so at? And someone hands me a newspaper and I open up the newspaper and I see a picture of my church. Listen, my church was small. I grew up in Long Island. I mean, I was born in Queens, but I grew up in Long Island, but my church was in Queens. Okay. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is in Queens is there's like quadrillion Korean churches. All right. Like every other block, there's another Korean church. So I was one of the many, 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 very small, not one of the big, you know, monstrous Korean churches, like a really tiny one. And there's my tiny little church. In the newspaper. And I'm like, what? What's going on? And I read through the paper and I find out that that pastor that I had put all of my hope in, that pastor that I thought this was a man of God, he actually slept with one of my youth group members who was under the age of 18, was accused and convicted of statutory rape, and was thrown in prison. I was like, what? Hold up. Wait a second. I mean, I signed up to love Jesus and I signed up to, you know, live the, have this walk and have a merry old time being a Christian, but I did not sign up for this. This is whack. I don't understand. That year, over 50% of my church all bounced. They left because no one wants to put their youth group kids, you know what I'm saying? In a youth group that experienced that. But because my father was an elder, I had to stick around. So it was me and like two other people. A youth group service was mad awkward. We're just sitting there like, what's up? You know, the nails in your hand. <laughs> and it wasn't even like even service. Like it was so small. You sit in a circle. So you're just singing, you know, to each other. And I'm like, dude. And I begged my dad, dad, please let me go to another church. Please. You can stay here, but let me go to another church. And my dad refused. He goes, no, our family goes to church together. And I was really bitter about that. But looking back, I'm, I'm so thankful for that experience. But I was, I was disappointed. 
I was frustrated. I was like, what? God, if you're real, why would something this twisted happen in your house? You know, it's not even like what happens in a public school or what happened in this, like, I don't know, other religious house. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that, but other religious house or worship place. But this is, hey, this is a Christian church. Why is this happening here? I was so disappointed. And the leaders after that, man, I was guarded. After that incident, I was like, I got to keep it guarded because, you know, I can't be trusting these leaders. Who knows what they're going to do? Have you ever been disappointed before? Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's not even in the church. Have you ever experienced something where your heart was broken and you're like, why would I have to go through something like that? I share this story a lot with my current students, but for you newcomers, the first time, this is a little bit explicit, but the first time I had sex, I wasn't a virgin, by the way, when I got married. Let me just put that out there. My husband was, though. <laughs> I told you he was holy and righteous. He's a good man. But I was really promiscuous when I was in, in high school and in college. But the first time I had sex, it, was, it wasn't consensual. I said no repeatedly. And the guy continued. Why would I have to go through something like that? That was one of three experiences of rape in my life. I don't get it. I'm discouraged. I'm disappointed. When I got into college, I met a guy. He was a drug dealer. I should have saw the red flag right there, but I thought he was cute. And when I was in high school, I drank, but I was like, you know what? I'm never going to do drugs. Like I had these like, you know, things that I, I'd say to myself. And, and then I dated a drug dealer. So let's, let's, let's think about what happened here, right? Then I started getting into marijuana and I was like, well, you know what? I'll just smoke, but I'll never take a pill. Then I got into ecstasy. You know what? I'll take a pill, but I'll never snort anything. Then I got into cocaine and ketamine and it just, every barrier just got broken. And I was dating this guy, and man, every day he would tell me how beautiful I was. That's why I liked him. <laughs> I honestly think that's why I stayed with him for as long as I did, almost four years, because he made me feel like I was like the most beautiful person in the world. Unfortunately, out of every year he was telling, man, you're so beautiful. How did I, how did I get a girl like you? Man, I'm so lucky that I, ha I, I can't believe that I'm with someone like you. While he was sweet-talking me, every single year we were together, he was cheating on me. I found that out in our fourth year of our relationship. Can you imagine the disappointment? And everybody that was part of our crew, I don't know why girls do this, but when girls date guys, they always hang out with the guy friends. You know what I mean? Like their boyfriend's friends. You ever see the guy chilling with the girl? Okay, anyway, so... So everyone in our crew, which was mainly, it started off his friends, but they all became my friends as well. They all knew. Nobody told me. And these were my friends. I trusted them. I confided in them. They confided in me. You want to talk about disappointment? I was disappointed. I was beyond disappointed. I was pissed. I was angry. I was frustrated. He was supposed to be the guy that thought I was the most beautiful person in the world. And yet he's cheating on me. I was disappointed by the church. I was disappointed by friendships and relationships. I was disappointed in myself 
for falling into things I swore that I wouldn't do. It's just so much disappointment. And here these guys are, they're walking and, and they thought they got it. They thought they knew the story. They thought they understood what was supposed to happen. Jesus was supposed to do all these signs and wonders. And he was supposed to take them and establish Israel as a new kingdom and resurrect the glory that they experienced in the Old Testament. And he went off and died. And he didn't just die. He died a public death. It wasn't even on the low. It was public. It was shameful. He died on the cross, which was the most shameful way you could be executed. Beside two criminals, him in the center, they probably were there watching him get nailed to the cross, hearing him say, cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is finished. What do you think was going on in their mind? They weren't skipping on the road to Emmaus. They were disappointed with their shoulders down, their head down in deep discussion. What kind of disappointment are you facing? What kind of disappointment are you holding against God? Where do you feel like he failed you? So many times throughout my life, I asked him, why? Why would I have to do, why would I have to go through this? I don't understand. Why? And deep down, I sincerely believe that God had failed me. And I also believe that I had failed him. I, I had this core belief that God did not and could not love me anymore because of the things that I had done. I knew better. I was a Christian. I got saved. Now, Savior. You know, like, who, what happened? How do you go from that to that? I was like, God can't. He can't accept that. They were so hurt. They were so disappointed. And watch what Jesus does. This is his response, man. Jesus keeps it real. Like everyone imagines Jesus to be this like really kind, like, oh, hello. No, look, look what he says. Look what he says. Oh, foolish ones. Basically like you stupid, you idiots. This is pretty much what he's saying for real. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets that have spoken. I love that. He just like, Jesus never sugarcoated anything. When it's something needed to be said, he said it. And he said it raw and he said it just bluntly. So he talks about you foolish one. And you know what he does? He goes through the scripture with them as they're walking on this road to Emmaus. And from the Old Testament to the prophets, he starts talking about all these prophetic words that were written about him. You guys, the Bible was written over a course of a very long time. It's not the Hunger Games. It's not Harry Potter. It's not Divergent. You know, it's not blue like jazz. It's not, it's not something that was written maybe over the course of five years. We're talking about thousands and thousands, centuries of centuries. This scripture was written not by one author, but numerous authors, but all pointing to the one main author. And different kinds of parts of the Bible represent different things. We have the books of law to the churches. We have poetry and songs in the Psalms. It's like this whole crazy book written over this insane amount of time. And there's over 300 prophecies that were written about Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection that were fulfilled in his life. Can you imagine? So he sits there and you know what? These were Jewish men. Because at the time, Jewish, Jesus only ministered to the Jews. Obviously, that wasn't his end site. That wasn't his end goal. But it started like that. And he ministered to the Jews. So these were Jewish men that were familiar with the scriptures, but they missed it. And he goes over each 
of these scriptural references, listen, I'll give you a couple just to blow your mind about how obvious it is to us, but how hidden it was for that generation. Psalm 22, 16 to 18. It says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. I don't know if you guys understood what I just wrote, read, but that was written over a thousand years ago. That Psalm was written over a thousand years ago. And it talks explicitly about the death of Jesus. They pierce my hands and my feet. Whoa, whoa, P.E. You know, that could have been for anyone. At this time, the, uh, the way to die by crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. That wasn't even created. So here the psalmist a thousand years ago talks about nail piercing the hands and nails piercing the feet. How does that happen? It was all hidden. It was all prophesied over. It was all foretold. And in the end of that passage, they divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus. They stripped his clothes off and they casted lots. Hey, who wants this? Hey, who wants that? They cast lots and they divided amongst themselves. Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from the old, from ancient days. Here's this prophetic word about the Savior, the Messiah coming from Bethlehem. And where was Jesus born? Y'all know this? Let me give you a clue. I just said it. It's Bethlehem, all right? This is where he was born. Again, written thousands of years ago, yet right on the money, fulfilled by the life of Jesus. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is a prophetic word about Jesus' betrayal by Judas, one of his close friends, one of the 12, his inner crew betraying him. Here's a, right here in Psalms. Thousands years ago, thousands of years ago, th- a thousand, not thousands, a thousand years ago. Can't say that. Zechariah eleven twelve thirteen. 13. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my, as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah eleven twelve to 13. This is crazy, guys. This is a prophetic word that the prophet Zechariah speaks. If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. I don't know if you guys know this, but when Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus, the price that was given to him with 30 pieces of silver, right on the dot. I can go over more and more and more scripture that points to Jesus's life as the fulfillment of the prophecy for the Messiah, the son of God. So here Jesus is, and he's just schooling them, walking. Let's start with Genesis, you know? Let's go on to Leviticus and let's go to the Psalms and let's go to Micah and let's go to Zechariah. And he is just schooling them on all of the prophetic words written over the course of time by different people that all point to him. And they're just amazed like, Ooh, what is going on? 
And they get to a point where it's time where they need to break apart because Jesus, like, he's trying to front like he's got to keep going, you know? It says in scripture that he straight up pretended like he was fronting, you know? He had no intention. He was just like, all right, I'm going to go. See you guys later, you know? And they're like, wait. You know when your parents used to do that? Like, oh, my Mommy's going. You're going to stay here, okay? Mommy's going now, you know? And you're like, no. <laughs> See, he plays this little game, and, and he, he stirs up this hunger inside of them. And watch what they do. They invite him. Come, stay with us. It's already dark. Come and stay with us. So he opens up this scripture. It's like this crazy conversation. And they sit down and something very interesting happens. He sits at a table with them and he takes the bread, blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them. And it says here, then their eyes were open. This is verse 31. And they recognized him. This is so interesting. There's a couple of reasons why this is interesting. Number one, up to this point, Jesus was their guest, right? They're the ones that invited him. Yet he's the one that's breaking the bread and blessing it. That is the role of the host. When you come to my house, my husband, he will pray for the meal. When I go to your house, your father or your husband, y'all got husbands, you know, or whoever is the, you know, the, 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 the whatever role in your house will bless the food. When you're the host, you pray. This is Jewish tradition. This is Judaic culture right here. If it's your house, you break the bread. Yet he was the, he was a guest and somehow it's in Jesus's hands and he breaks the bread. And when he does that, their eyes were open. Why? Why would their eyes be open? Just by breaking the bread. Was this bread magical bread? That when he opened it, the fumes of the bread, whoa, and like, no, that's not what happened, all right? It wasn't this amazing bread. The last meal that Jesus had when he was alive was a Passover meal. And it's so incredible that God just orchestrated all of this so beautifully. It was the Passover meal, and he had his apostles gathered with him. And it was then they ate, they feasted, and they all were used to seeing Jesus break the bread and bless it because he was the honored, um, I guess, not, not just prophet, but he was like their mentor. What, what's another word for mentor in the Judaic culture? Why, why, huh? Rabbi, there we go. Because he was their rabbi, the person whom they were following, um, they were being discipled by him. They always gave him that honor, no matter whose house they went to, okay? And, and so um, they're used to seeing Jesus break the bread and being at the place and breaking bread. But it wasn't just that. On this eve of his death, on Passover, not only do they have this regular Passover meal, which they've done all of their life, every year, they're so used to this Passover meal, but he ends this Passover meal this particular night, right before he gets busted with Judas and, and all these people, with breaking the bread and talking about, do this in remembrance of me. They're like, what? What are you talking about? For this bread represents my flesh, and this wine represents my blood. Very strange words, guys. To us, you know, it makes sense. Oh, Jesus, communion, you know, eat the bread and drink the grape juice, you know? But to them, like, think about how barbaric and how cannibalistic that sounds. This bread represents my body. Can you imagine if I did that to you now? Y'all would, like, leave the door. And you better leave the door because... Someone says stuff like that. You got to go. 
But it's this bizarre thing. I mean, this is not the first time he said it. He said it before. And a bunch of the disciples that followed him left because they were so offended. But he does it again in this position of he's reclining. Like when they ate, they weren't like sitting and like, like it was so much cooler back then. They just like chilled. They literally lounged. And they're sitting on the floor lounging. And he talks about this bread. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember me. This is what we do when we have communion, when we eat the little wafers. I don't know what you guys ate, but at my church growing up, we had a Entenmann's pound cake. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's so good. So during communion, I would straight choose the biggest piece. You know that little plate when I'd be like, get the biggest piece and just shove it in my mouth. It was delicious. And then we had Welch's grape juice. Like it was just like a little snack. Um, but obviously, when I got older and understood the, the depth of what that meant, it was whenever you had the sacraments, you remembered what Jesus did for us on the cross. This was his foretelling. I'm about to go. They don't know this. He's mentioned it to them already. I'm going to die. And they're like, Jesus, no. You know, Peter's like, never. And he's like, get out of here, fool. You know, do this in remembrance of me. And it was something that we would continue to do to this day as an act of remembering what Jesus has done. This was on Passover. Why is it being on Passover so significant? And by the way, when they had this meal, they were still celebrating Passover because that celebration lasts about a week. So the bread that was broken was unleavened bread, which was the tradition in Jewish culture on Passover. You don't have bread that raises up, you know, that dough, that nice dough. It's like very flat there's no yeast. You break it, it's, it's not tasty. I've had it. I grew up with mad Jewish people on Long Island. And, you know, we had matzah. We had all these kind of things. And that bread, it's not, it's not the most delicious tasting bread, all right? But they, but they break the bread, and it's reminiscent of that conversation that he has. But what is, what, is, what is it about Passover that's so significant? Here is the, the turning point. Here's when your mind goes, already he leads up to it. With the prophecies. You know what I mean? When you watch a movie and you just see those like, hmm. And when you look back, you realize it was, it was all foreshadowing. Dude, they were trying to clue us in here. Or that was a hint then. Or they were trying to show us a little hint there. But it's that one moment of revelation. This is their moment of revelation. They're about to have this continual celebration of Passover. Jesus breaks the bread. They remember this image. Remember, they're his disciples. So they've seen him do this time after time after time. But on Passover, what's so significant about it? is it was a celebration of redemption. It was a celebration of redemption because at that time, what had happened, the original Passover story was the Israelites were in bondage. They were in slavery. How many of you guys ever felt like you were in slavery? I was addicted to drugs. I know what slavery is like. But some of you guys may not be as intense as drugs, but you feel slaves to fear. Or you may feel like a slave to anxiety or a slave to unforgiveness it says in scripture, without Christ, we're slaves to sin. And so here's this foreshadowing. The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. And they're in this process of Moses leading them out. And that God does these 10 plagues. It's like all these crazy plagues. And they're up to the 10th one, the last one. And it was to be said that the firstborn of every child was going to die. Isn't that interesting? The firstborn, the firstborn of every child. No, the firstborn of every house was going to die. And what the Israelites were commanded to do in order to avoid this plague was they were supposed to sacrifice a lamb. Listen to this. Not just any lamb, but it had to be the best of the lambs. An unblemished lamb. 
They had to sacrifice it. And not only, not in secret, they had to sacrifice this lamb in public. They sacrificed this lamb and they were to take the blood and they were to sprinkle it on the door frame, but in such a way that they were supposed to cover the doorposts and what they call um, lintels. And the image, literally the visual of what you get is this. This perfect lamb, you sacrifice it in public, you take the blood, you go to the door, and you do this image. You guys with me here? On the door, John 10, 9, it says, I am the door. This is Jesus speaking. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. On the door, a cross. This is all pointing to Jesus and they're sitting there and he's breaking the bread and it's like scene after scene of Jesus breaking bread in front of them. Passover of all these traditions that they did since they were a little boy year after year after year of watching their fathers put this motion in blood on the cross, seeing a lamb getting sacrificed. And all of a sudden they realize, Oh my gosh, it was all planned. Oh my gosh, this was always supposed to happen. Oh my gosh, God knew what he was doing. Oh my gosh, this is Jesus and he's alive. This was a huge revelation for them. And now their doubt, their disappointment, their fatigue, their frustration, totally blown out of the water. And the moment they see Jesus, they recognize him. He just straight up vanishes. Man, I want to do that. That's just like so cool. You know who I am? You know what I mean? Like just, just go, oh my gosh. You know? Now I'm not that cool. I'm not that cool. But Jesus is that cool. And he just vanishes and it changes the course of their future. They were planning to go to Emmaus and stay at Emmaus, but what did they do? They run around, they turn around and they go straight back to Jerusalem and they shout out, it's true. It's true. But those ladies, those crazy ladies said earlier today about that tomb being empty. What they're saying is for real. I heard it secondhand, but now I know it firsthand. I saw Jesus face to face and he is alive. It's true. See, when you understand the gospel message, everything gets reframed. They thought they were walking with a stranger this whole road. But when they understood who he was, they realized he's been with them the whole time. They didn't recognize him, but now they do. Some of you guys feel like in your past, man, Jesus, I, I, where is he? You have memories where like, God, where have you been? You get the revelation of the gospel and you realize, man, God, you've been with me this whole time. Some of you guys are already saved, but there's still pockets of disappointment and discouragement in your life. Will you think and you feel like God has failed you, but I'm here to tell you at Emmaus Road, you will find out that not only has God paid the price to reframe your present and your future, but he's going to reframe your past. And he's going to get you to understand, oh my gosh, God, you were with me. You were with me when I had gotten raped. You were crying for me. You were with me when that guy disappointed me and cheated on me. You were with me. You were with me when I had gone through these disappointments with my youth pastor. You were with me and you were for me. My story, I could tell you a narrative that's sad and pitiful and woe is me. (laughs) I'm a victim, but I'm not a victim. 
I stand understanding what the gospel message has done, not just in my present day, not starting from sixth grade, but from the beginning of time when I was born, I recognize that God has always had a plan for me. When you walk in that kind of revelation, then your heart gets set on fire. It says in scripture, their hearts were not our hearts burning when he opened up the scripture to us. Then in that moment, when they understood the cross, when they understood the lamb, when they understood this was all pointing to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that this was all planned when they finally got it. It's like everything that they've been through made complete sense. Listen, we have the best twist in our stories. It's better than any thriller or sixth sense, whatever, please. Homie was a ghost. Who cares? I'm talking about something that changes the narrative of your life. And I feel like some of the stories you guys are carrying is not the right story. You think you understood what happened, but because you're still walking in disappointment, you still need a revelation of the gospel. You know, some of you guys are already Christian in here, probably most of you. But let me tell you from the bottom of my heart, the gospel message is not just for when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. The power of the gospel happens every single day, every single moment. And even as a Christian, there are parts of us where we can be tempted into being disconnected with what Jesus has done for us. I'm a Christian, but I still feel like God wasn't with me in this situation. I'm a Christian, but I'm still walking with hopelessness in this situation. I'm okay in all these other situations, but here, let's not go there. Family? No, don't even talk to me about family. You're not allowed. Let's not go there. That's too, no, that's my area. I don't want to talk about it. My past? No, 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 no. We can talk about anything else. I'll talk about my family, but I don't want to talk about my past. There are areas in our lives that we hold on to and that literally we're walking like this. I don't get it. Where was he? I don't get it. I thought he was supposed to be the savior. I don't get it. I thought he was supposed to be the one. This is the journey that I want to invite you guys on. You know how good God is? Jesus didn't meet him, meet these two disciples at the end of this revelation. He didn't just send an angel and say, read these scriptures, you know, like he came to them in person, in the midst of their disappointment, in the midst of their frustration, Jesus appeared. They didn't recognize him, but that didn't stop him. Even though they didn't recognize him, he walked beside them step by step as their heads were down, as there were tears streaming down their face. And still he patiently opened up. Scripture by scripture, word by word, revelation by revelation to bring them to the place where happens. I wanted to name my message, but I didn't know how to put that in words. This is, this is the story that I want you guys to experience here in Korea, in your semester, whether you're here for a semester or a year, God wants to you and the areas where you feel ashamed the areas where you feel afraid, the areas where you feel uncertain and disillusioned and discouraged, God wants to and turn it to a place with, oh my gosh, you were there, Lord. Oh my gosh, this was a setup, God. Oh my gosh, you can turn all things around for my good. 
all these stories and incidents that I've been through, I speak it out over the microphone in front of everybody year after year after year with the devil intended for my destruction. God is turned for his glory. That's the kind of resurrection power that the gospel has. This is what I believe Jesus wants you to live this life. Are you walking in victory? Do you truly believe in every area of your life that Jesus is alive? That he does carry the power. That there's no need to be discouraged or disappointed anymore. Jesus said it is finished when he died on the cross. This is what I believe God's heart is for us. He's going to change the narrative of your story. From a sad story. A shameful story. A fearful story. To a victorious one. And you're going to go from hearing encounters of other people experiencing it. Oh, I know that Joyce, good for her. I'm glad that she had her breakthrough in this ministry, but I don't know about me. You're going to go from hearing it secondhand to someone's testimony to it becoming your very own story. They saw Jesus face to face. Face to face. There's a group in our, in our church, they're alums now because they have moved on to move back to the States. Amazing couple. Um, and we're still in very deep relationship with them. Their names are Elizabeth and Mark Rado. And they started this magazine. And the title of their magazine is called Rewrite. And basically, they go around collecting these incredible testimonies of people who've been through some insane things and have their stories have been rewritten by what Christ has done. That's the concept of the magazine. It's really amazing. If you guys, you know, are want to not study, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? If you guys not, you don't, you don't want to do homework, go to this website, you know, <laughs> this is bad that I'm saying this, huh? But check out rewrite. Uh, and I know that you guys will be really blessed, but this is what I believe God wants to do. Not just for those people that are being written about. This is his, promise to us is he's going to rewrite your story. So where have you been disappointed? Are you disappointed in yourself? You feel like you've gone too far. There's no way to come back or you tried. Listen, pastor, that's nice, but I've tried to do the right thing. And you're just stuck. I want to invite you guys to just go on this journey with us. Joy said it herself. We're not meant to do this by ourselves. And it's interesting that Jesus encountered not one, but two disciples that were in conversation with one another, both before Jesus came and even after. There's an essence of community that we need to understand. And this is what community is supposed to be. Again, we're not here to invite you in when you're good. And when you have everything put together and when you're happy, when you smile all the time, yay. No, we want to invite you in when you're upset, when you're frustrated in the place of your fear, come just like Jesus met them there. We want to meet each other there and still walk with one another. I want you guys to just close your eyes.